Well, will you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew? Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, and we are going to be reading uh, verses 46 through 50 today. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? This is the word of God. Let's give it our attention. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass and the grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. Kids, I want to begin by asking you a question today. I wonder if you have ever had juice concentrate. Um, Growing up as a child, we always had several cans or tubes of frozen juice concentrate in the freezer. Uh, Have you had juice concentrate before? Uh, You know, when you go to the store, you can usually buy juice in big jugs or maybe in cartons. You can, of course, squeeze your own juice from fruit. But you can also go to the freezer section and buy it in these frozen tubes. That's because uh, most of what makes up juice is actually water. Uh, when fruit grows, like orange trees that we have here in Florida, they, they take up that water from the ground, and so that if you squeezed an orange, you would get fresh, liquid orange juice. Well, in juice concentrate, what happens is they take the liquid out. The manufa- manufacturer takes that fresh juice, and then he heats it up, Uh, so that they can evaporate almost all of the water out of the juice, so that what is left is the juice in a very thick, kind of viscous form. It's very, very sugary. It's the same juice. It's just juice that has been concentrated down, so that instead of buying a huge gallon jug of orange juice, you can just buy this little, small tube of juice concentrate. And then when you want juice for breakfast, you can take that tube of frozen concentrate out of the freezer, you can drop it in a pitcher, and then you can put the water back in, and you can dilute it, 
uh, and that sugary substance will begin to taste something more like juice. Sometimes when I was a kid, my dad would give me a special treat. Before he would put that juice concentrate into the pitcher, he'd like let me take a spoon and just take a spoonful of that juice concentrate out, and it was so good. And I'd get a brain freeze, and it was, it was the sugariest, sweetest, like yummiest little popsicle bite you could have. But you know that there are other things that you can concentrate besides juice. You can concentrate poison. Uh, from time to time, I have to kill the weeds around my house. And just like juice comes in a concentrated form, I buy weed killer in a concentrated form. And it just takes two teaspoons of concentrated poison added to five gallons of water to kill every weed in my yard. If you got a little bit of that diluted poison in your mouth, once it's mixed with all the water, it would probably make you pretty sick. But if you drank the concentrated poison, it would certainly kill you. Now, I want you to do a little thought experiment with me. Not just the kids, all of you. I want you to think about your sins for a moment. I want you to think about the sins that you've already committed this morning and the sins that you committed this week and the sins of the past month and of the whole year and of your whole life. And now I want you to not just think of your sins. I want you to think of the sins of everybody sitting next to you, of all of God's people in this room. And now not just all of God's saints in this room, but all of his saints in the city of Gainesville and in the state of Florida and in the United States and in the whole world and throughout all of human history. And now I want you to remember that God is holy and that he hates sin and that his justice demands that he punish sin. And now I want you to think of that righteous wrath and anger of God against all of your sins and all of the sins of his elect throughout the whole world, throughout all of human history, and I want you to think of them being concentrated. Like that concentrated juice, that concentrated poison. I want you to think of them distilled down into one horrific, fatal dose And now I want you to remember the words of Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed when he prayed in the garden. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. As we come to look at the cross, 
it is as though all hell is being administered in one horrific, concentrated dose that Jesus drinks to the bitter dregs. That is something like what is happening in this passage before us today as Jesus experiences the darkness of judgment, the dereliction of abandonment, and the cursed death on the cross, all as a substitute for his people. And so I want to use those three words today as a way of organizing our thoughts as we work through this passage together. First, the darkness as the light of the world is being snuffed out in the darkness of God's judgment. Secondly, the dereliction, as Jesus is abandoned and forsaken, not only by his friends and his followers, but even now by the Heavenly Father. And then finally, I want us to consider his death, as Jesus bears this curse in order that he might bring about the blessing of life. Look at that first verse, verse 45 with me. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Darkness throughout your Bible is always a picture and a symbol of God's just judgment. Uh, Whether you are thinking of the plague of deep darkness that covered Egypt leading up to that first Passover, or whether we think of the darkness that the prophets foretold would accompany the day of the Lord, they are all images of judgment. Now, let me give you a few examples of the way the prophets describe this darkness. In Isaiah 59, the prophet describes God's judgment, and he says, We hope for light, but behold, there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the night. Joel describes the day of the Lord as a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Uh, Perhaps most to the point, Amos 8 says that on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight, and I will turn your feast into morning, and I will make it like the morning for an only sun, and the end of it like a bitter day. That is exactly what is occurring here from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. That is, from noon to 3 p.m., there was darkness over all the land. And whether God ordered some natural astronomical phenomenon or whether this is a darkness of a purely supernatural order, uh, either way, the darkness points us to the same terrible reality that during these three hours, Christ is suffering now not just the wrath of man, but the wrath of God himself. And while all of the gospel accounts record the intense darkness, uh, none of them attempt to recount anything about what is happening during this time. All we know 
is that during these hours, Christ was suffering agonies of soul as he was being made sin for us, as the Lord was laying on him the iniquity of us all. And I think that we are to understand that during these three terrible hours, the day of the vengeance of our God had arrived, so that his holy justice might be satisfied as the severity of his wrath is being poured out on the head of Jesus Christ, a substitute for sinners. It is as though all of God's wrath against all of the sins of his elect throughout all of the world, throughout all of time, are distilled and concentrated in this one moment. So that at the cross, hell itself is being administered in this one terrible, concentrated, distilled dose. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. He himself was bearing our sins in his body to the tree. Or as our confession says it, he not only endured most painful sufferings in his body, but he endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul. And at the end of these three hours, the darkness gives way to a cry from his lips, a cry of dereliction. Hendrickson says that the link between the darkness and the cry is very close. The first is a symbol of the agonizing content of the second. What is the content of that cry? About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, that is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? We have watched through this gospel as Jesus has been forsaken. Uh, he has already been forsaken by his followers, by the multitudes and the crowds who turned on him. He has been forsaken by his friends in his hour of need. Uh, he is even now forsaken by those few women uh, who had ministered to him throughout his life, now standing at a distance, removed from any aid. But worst of all, he is forsaken by God. And he gives expression to that abandonment, to that dereliction, by quoting from Psalm 22 in Hebrew, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How is this possible? How can God forsake his son? How can he forsake the God-man? Well, I think the answer lies in the mystery of the two natures of Jesus Christ, who is at the same time both fully God and fully man in one person. And each nature is doing and is experiencing that which is proper to itself. So that as God forsakes Jesus in this hour, he is forsaking not the divinity of the Son, 
but the humanity of the Son as he stands as our substitute. And yet, his divinity was sustaining him and keeping his human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God. I think that is the real horror of the cross. Jesus endures in his humanity what no mere human being could ever endure. No human being could even see God, let alone endure fully and make satisfaction for the eternal wrath of God. Even if they should suffer in hell for all of eternity, which is exactly what hell is, it is eternal punishment from the presence of the Lord, which is never satisfied. But Jesus, in his humanity, is enabled by his divinity to endure what he could otherwise never endure. He's not helped to escape it. He's helped to endure it. Think of that. I want to give you an analogy, and all analogies are faulty, especially when it comes to matters like the two natures of Christ. But I I want you to imagine a man that is being beaten to the point where he cannot stand in his own strength. And then another comes and holds him up so that he can continue to be beaten. The two natures of Christ are not divided like two men. They are are in one person. And yet the divine nature is enabling and sustaining the human nature so that he can can continue to endure the wrath of God. How sobering is that? That he is enduring every last ounce. He is not helped to escape it. He's helped to endure it. That is what is at the heart of this forsakenness. He is not saved from it. He is sustained in it. That is what is in view in Psalm 22. When you go back and you read it, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I am crying to you by day, but you will not answer. Jesus is drinking the cup. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, if this is necessary, your will be done. And in this moment, the Father's answer comes with his silence. This is necessary. You must drink it. This is what was necessary so that we might not be forsaken. He must be so that we might not be. 
And at the very moment this most important transaction in all of redemptive history is occurring, it is being completely misunderstood and misinterpreted by those who are standing by. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine. And he put it on a reed and he gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let's see. At the risk of um, dumbing this down too much, you know that meme where the guy's just like throwing popcorn in his mouth. Let's see what happens. That's the kind of scorn and ridicule that's going on here. Now, it may not make sense to us why they think that he's calling on Elijah, but if you look at the words, you'll discover it. The Hebrew word, Eli, which Jesus says from the cross, is the first part of the name, Eliyah, Elijah. Elijah was a powerful prophet, and there was uh, lots of eschatological expectations surrounding him and the role he would play in the coming Messiah. And so as they hear Jesus calling out, as they hear him saying, Eli, they mishear him. They misunderstand him. They assume that he's calling out for Elijah. And it's probably here Uh, that Jesus says those other words which are not recorded by Matthew but are recorded by John, I thirst. And in response, one of these, the, the less heartless bystanders fills a sponge with sour wine and puts it on a reed to give him to drink. But even this sour act of relief is met with scorn. Hang on. Let's watch. Let's see if Elijah really comes to save him. And I'm thinking, what? Whether Elijah will come to save him? Think about that. Whether Elijah will come to save him? No. It is Elijah who is being saved by him right now. Elijah's just a man like any other man. He's a sinful son of Adam. He's a man with clay feet. He's like the rest of us. And it is precisely because no one comes to save Jesus that Elijah is able to be saved by him. Elijah is not going to come to save him. The disciples are not going to come to save him. He will not call the angels to come and save him. His father will not come to save him. And it is because no one comes to save him that you can be saved by him. And at last, the darkness then and the dereliction finally give way to his death. As we read that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. Here the cry would be his final words that are recorded in the other Gospels. It is finished, and into thy hands I commit my spirit. 
Now the darkness is lifted. At last. And it is a sign to him that the work is done. As Hendrickson says, he fully regains consciousness of the Father's loving presence and is entrusting his spirit to the Father's loving care. Matthew chooses to highlight the fact that he yielded up his spirit. That is to say that at the right time, he gave his life. That no one took it from him. He laid it down. It was his willing sacrifice. Jesus offered up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. You know, when we conduct our membership interviews, I often begin by asking people about the bad news before we talk about the good news. And I will often ask people this question, what is the wages of sin? And without fail, I will get the biblical answer. The wages of sin is death. But I will often take that opportunity to press the question a little bit more. And I will ask something like this. So, when the Bible talks about death, is it just talking about physical death? Is it just speaking about our bodily death? To which I often get the right answer again, no. The Bible is not just talking about physical death. It's talking about more. It's talking about that second death eternal death, and hell. And the reason I ask that question is because I want, I want us to make sure that we, we understand and appreciate what it is that we really deserve for our sins. But more importantly than that, I want to make sure that we understand what our Savior had to endure for our sins. That if we are to be delivered, Jesus must endure what Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians as the inflicting of vengeance and suffering punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That is what Christ endures at the cross. That eternal punishment, that concentrated wrath and vengeance of God. And it's only when he has suffered that, only when he has finished drinking that cup, when he had made full and final satisfaction for sins, only then does he actually physically die. How his physical death must have come as a relief in comparison to the torments of his soul. And yet it was not until that final moment, it was with that last cry, with that last breath, that our Savior ultimately finished the work. It was a moment that convulsed all of creation, a moment that tore the temple curtain in two, splitting rocks and opening graves. We'll get to that next week. But it also opened another way. It opened a way into heaven itself. That is why we say we may come through the veil of Christ's flesh and come boldly with confidence 
before the throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help in time of need. But it did not look that way in the moment, did it? In fact, it looked anything like a victory. To the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, it looked like cosmic defeat. To the bystanders who were standing around, waiting to see if Elijah would come to save him, it looked like a pathetic failure. To the women who watched from afar, it looked like the crushing of their hopes and dreams. As the lifeless body of Jesus hung limp on the cross, it looked like anything but victory to everyone who was watching, whether in heaven or on earth, to everyone but to God himself, to God as he watched his beloved son, To him, this was the historical accomplishment of the eternal plan and purpose of redemption. To him, this was not just a victory. This was the conquest of sin and death and the devil. A fact that would become clear in just three days. Uh, His body would remain under the power of death for three days, but in three days, God would vindicate the victory of his son by raising that limp, lifeless body of our Lord in glorious resurrection life. And now he will command all people everywhere to repent, saying he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and has given proof to all by raising him from the dead. Indeed, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. That's the rest of that sentence. That's why we always move in our membership interviews from the bad news to the good news. Now tell me the good news. Tell me what is your hope. My hope is that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, it is because he experienced darkness that we experience light. It is because he was deserted that we are delivered. It is because he was not heard when he cried that you are heard when you cry. It's because he drank the cup of curse that we are about to drink the cup of blessing that we bless. It's because no one came to save him that we are saved by him. It's because he tasted that concentrated wrath of God that we taste the concentrated grace and mercy of God. And there is nothing sweeter in all the world than that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord our God, We wonder at your plan and purpose of redemption that you should give your only begotten Son perfect in righteousness and holiness for worms and wretches like us. That you should come and that you should take that curse and bear it. That you should drink the cup to the bitter dregs. That you should do all that was necessary for us and for our salvation. 
and that now by your Holy Spirit you are even applying these things to our hearts and lives and conforming us into the image of Christ so that we might walk in a way that is worthy of our calling, so that we might be a living testimony to the grace of God shown at the cross. Lord, would you help us to appreciate what occurred in that moment, that all of our moments might resound to your glory and honor. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And then as a beautiful wonderful picture of the unity that we have in Christ and the the communion that we have. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, The Supper is is not simply a a communion with God. It is a communion with the body of Christ, right? He is the head and we are the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Can you imagine that, that that's what the Bible says about the body? We are the fullness of Christ, filling all in all. What a beautiful thing uh, that we get to be the body and bride of Christ and that we have this union and communion together through the blood of Jesus Christ because that is what this uh, sacrament signifies, isn't it? Uh, The pictures that Jesus gave on the night in which he was betrayed were saying, this is my body that's given for you. This is my blood that's being poured out for you. He wanted his disciples uh, to have a unity that was built upon the foundation of his work on the cross. And so even today, as we continue to participate in this meal and to participate in one another, we do so only through the body and blood of our Savior. Uh, This is the cup of curse that he drank so that we might drink this cup Of blessing. Now, this meal is not for everyone. Uh, This meal is for those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been made a part of that body, who have uh, turned away from their sins, repented of them, and are seeking the, the forgiveness and the righteousness that God imputes. And if that is true of you, if you have confessed your faith in Christ, if you've been baptized and have his name put upon you, you're a part of the family of God and and you belong to a church where the gospel's faithfully being preached, we welcome you to come and to join in this meal with us. Uh, But if, if any of those things are not true of you, let me just humbly ask you to let these elements pass. But as I, I do every week, let me encourage you not to let Christ pass. He is here to be received with faith by anyone who would call upon his name. Uh, Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Well, let us, as we come to this meal, ask that the Lord would bless these elements uh, for this holy use. Let's pray. Lord, as as we approach your table, we do with a sense of sobriety, knowing that we do not deserve to come and to feed at the, at the riches of your table. And yet, Lord, we also come with joy and thankfulness, so excited that we have been invited, not just to gather up the crumbs that fall from this table, but to actually come and to, to have a seat here to belong to your family, uh, to know that our sins are forgiven and to live in this assurance. Oh, Lord, would you please use this meal to that end? Would you assure us today we are so weighed down by the awareness of our own sins, 
uh, by what they deserve. Lord, would you help us to be even more aware of the grace that superabounds to us, that where sin abounds, grace all the more abounds, and that you have truly finished the work. There is nothing left for us to do. Help us to rest in it. As surely as we take this bread and eat it and we drink this wine and we taste it, Lord, help us to know and to rest in your grace. This is a means of grace to us. You have purposed it to that end. Now bless it. We say it in Jesus' name. Amen.